odds are all against me. I'm ready to go, burning it down. They ain't noticed till the temperature rose. Bless the energy. Then we erupt in a blaze. Mama save us. I swear the baby's lately crazy. Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster, and you're listening to Sorceress, a weekly podcast of awesome serialized urban fantasy fiction written by amazing authors, performed for you by professional narrators, and brought to you by SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Awakened, Paragons Book One. Written by C. Stephen Manley. Performed for you by James Anderson Foster. Episode Four. Chapter Seven. Erin was still screaming when she stumbled forward and fell onto her knees into hard dirt and dry grass. Her head spun and she felt like she had just shotgunned a six pack. Her stomach rolled over and she vomited hard. It splattered against the ground in the thin grass and left tiny droplets on her pants. Her fingers clawed at the dirt as the stomach spasms eased. Dirt. There was dirt. Erin opened her eyes. Around her, the sky was barely lit by the setting sun. Desert scrub grass and Joshua trees were scattered across a shadowed landscape that stretched for miles to a skyline she knew all too well. It was Las Vegas. She was home. How the fuck was she home? She got to her feet and turned in a slow circle. Despite the rapidly cooling desert air that touched her skin and the expanse of the Nevada desert around her, she knew this couldn't be right. She was just in Silver Sky in fucking Georgia. There was no way she could be in Nevada. It wasn't possible. Erin closed her eyes and took long, deep breaths until she felt her heart stop hammering. Stone. She had been arguing with that short shit. He probably did something to her, and now she was hallucinating or something. She shook her head. She'd dropped a couple of tabs over the years. She knew hallucinations, and this didn't feel that way. She opened her eyes slowly. The desert was still there. Aaron heard her teeth grinding together more than felt it. She took a deep breath to scream in frustration, but instead let it hiss through her clenched teeth in anger. This, the dungeon, Warburton, he shouldn't be surprised. It was all part of the shit storm of a life she'd been gifted with from the day she was born. Or at least, from the first time Tico had. She cursed at her own thoughts and pushed the memories away. Thinking about her brother was never useful. She closed her eyes again, her sense of calm warring with the need to panic at the insanity of the moment. It was the dungeon all over again. A memory of Israel came to her then. He told her to stay cool and stay focused on getting out. Freaking out would only make it worse. This wasn't a dungeon, but it sure as shit qualified as some place she needed to get out of. Aaron latched on to that memory. She hadn't had anything on her when she'd gone with Israel to see that Warburton bitch. So that meant no money and, more importantly, no phone, which probably wouldn't get a signal this far out anyway. The city was starting to light up in the distance, but 
That was a hike of miles across open desert in the dark to even reach the outlying suburbs of Las Vegas. That thought stuck in her mind. It was strange, but she could see the distance between her and the tiny silhouettes of houses to a degree that she had never experienced before. It was the clearest thing in the world to her, as though the space between her and the closest house was something she could feel. The sound of a car speeding over asphalt distracted her. She looked up just in time to catch the fading glow of what had to be headlights. She hadn't noticed before, but she was at the bottom of a small, steep hill. She had no interest in climbing through the dirt to get to the top of that hill. If there was a road on the other side of it, though, that could make things easier for her. She gritted her teeth and looked up at the incline. Again, that feeling of tangible distance came over her. It was an acute awareness of here and there. It was like she could feel the top of that rise in her mind as though she were already there in some sense and could touch it, touch it and pull on it. There was a sudden rush of air as Aaron appeared at the top of the slope and staggered forward. Her foot caught on the edge of the asphalt highway and she staggered once again to her knees. The nausea flooded through her again, but she did not retch this time. Her presence of mind was intact enough that she scrambled backwards off the asphalt and onto her butt beside the road. She twisted and looked behind her. Las Vegas was coming to life in the distance. On the ground at the bottom of the slope, there was a darker shadow staining the ground around where she had been. Faint whiffs of bile drifted up to her. Her mind reeled at what had just happened, or had it. A part of her was certain that she had finally snapped and lost her grip on reality completely. She had always thought she might, that the life she had lived would catch up to her and steal away her sanity the way Tico had done her innocence. Again, she pushed away her brother's memory. Focus, keep your head. She nodded at this and rose to her feet. She looked back at the vomit-stained ground again, then across the silent highway. There was just enough light for her to focus on a specific spot that was about five feet past the far edge of the road. She calmed her thoughts and that sense of distance came to her again, and for the second time she felt the far distance and pulled. There was the rush of air again and she staggered but didn't fall. She spun around and faced behind her. Between her and the edge of the asphalt was five feet of empty, untouched desert sand. Oh, Fuck, she said. Oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. She looked up and down the road. There was nothing but the dark and the desert. Anywhere she looked, though, if she calmed her trembling mind, she could feel the far distance. She saw the silhouette of a tall Joshua tree that was at the far edge of her vision and a safe distance from the road. Aaron focused on a point to the right of it, relaxed until she felt it, and then pulled. This time, she did not stumble when she appeared. Her stomach twisted, but only a little. To her left was a tall, thick Joshua tree. The panic she had felt was slowly giving way to another feeling. This one brought a small laugh bubbling into her throat. Whatever was happening, what had happened, was worth it if what she was doing was the payoff. She looked to her left, vanished, and then reappeared on the other side of the Joshua tree. She grinned and laughed some more. Five feet, ten feet, twenty feet, 
She disappeared and reappeared from place to place like some kind of stuttering, impossible dancer, moving to the music of her own wondrous joy. Finally, breathless, she came to rest and fell onto her back on the desert sand. Her laughter had faded, but the smile would not leave her face. Above her, the sky opened in a star-filled vista of black and silver sparkle. It was a cloudless night, and the moon was full and bright. She lay there for a while, tired but smiling in amazement at the glowing moon. She still thought she might be insane, but if this was what crazy felt like, she'd take it. Finally, she sat up and looked around again. It was full dark now, and the lights of Las Vegas were a heavy glow on the horizon. She thought about trying to teleport, the idea made her laugh again, to the city, but it was much farther than she was ready to try. Still, though, there was plenty of moonlight, so she could just get there in a series of short. She wasn't sure what to call what she did. Jumps? Pops? Pulls? It didn't matter. She could do a lot of little ones rather than one big one and be in the city in no time. A light caught her eye farther down the highway. A neon sign blinked near the edge of the highway. It faintly illuminated a large square structure that seemed strangely familiar to Aaron. It would be easy enough to get there and quicker than the city. There was probably a landline phone that she could use. Despite being a sack full of lying dicks, she figured the people back at Silver Sky might want to know what had happened to her. Besides, if this is what she was going through, what might be happening to Israel? He hadn't looked so good when she'd been arguing with Stone. Yeah, call from an isolated place, even if the Warburton bitch, war bitch, traced the call, Aaron would be long gone. Once she was back in Vegas, there was no way they could find her. Even if they did, how could they catch her? Aaron made her decision, focused on the neon sign, and pulled. As soon as she appeared, she realized that she knew the place. She took a step back from the memory, but that didn't stop it from rushing over her. The neon sign was older, buzzing and clicking as it blinked the words Rod's Roadhouse over and over again. She remembered standing under this sign, remembered listening to the whispered negotiations between Tico and the trucker, remembered the cigarette stink of the sleeping cabin in the man's truck, his flabby, unwashed body over her, on her, and in her. It had been her first trick. She sobbed at the memory just as she had the act. She wiped the tears from her eyes with quick, fierce motions. Why of all the places in the world had she ended up here? What were the odds? Aaron didn't know. Maybe she had just pulled some memory from her mind with that first, what was it, jump, pull? She really needed to come up with a name for this. Regardless, maybe it hadn't been random. She took a few steadying breaths and looked around. The parking lot was mostly empty. There were a couple of Harley-Davidson motorcycles and a long-haul Mack truck with no trailer parked on one side. Back then, she'd only gone as far as the parking lot, but if she wanted to contact Silver Sky, she'd have to go in. That suited her. No memories to haunt her there. She walked to the door and pulled it open with a quick jerk, harder than she'd intended. Anger nipped at her, but she tried to ignore it. She just wanted to use the phone and get gone. There was a small foyer space littered with playbills for all the shows, escort services, and various other vices that Vegas was famous for. Beyond that, the roadhouse was one big open space with a tiny stage. 
Everything was wood and chrome, from the furniture to the heavy rafters that supported the roof. It smelled of beer, old cigarettes, and the dried dustiness that seemed to permeate the desert. Two tough-looking men in leather biker vests were sitting at the bar, talking with the bartender. All three of them were sipping at a glass of brown liquor. They looked up as she entered. Well, the bartender said, what can I do for you, little lady? Looks like you've hit a bad patch of luck. He smiled easily enough, but Aaron didn't miss the way his eyes assessed her like he was looking over a car he was thinking of buying. Then again, though, she probably looked like hell. I need a phone, she said. I wrecked my car a few miles back. I need to call my friends, please. The bartender smiled. Sure, it's behind the bar, come on over. He gestured her toward the far end of the bar, away from the bikers. Aaron walked over to the bar, her feet making hollow thuds along the floor as she moved. She heard the scrape of a chair sliding across wooden planks and one of the bikers say something about the men's room. She got to the bar and stood facing the bartender. He was older, probably in his 40s, and had a lean face and build. His wrinkled nose and cheeks were broken up by the small spiderwebs of veins that marked him as someone who drank too much and had for many years. He seemed sober enough to Aaron at the moment. Good Lord, little lady, he said, smiling and showing nicotine yellow teeth. You look like you've been rowed hard and put away wet. Aaron didn't miss the tiny smirk at his comment. Yeah. It was a long walk. Could I use that phone, please? His smile changed slightly, and his eyes seemed to look past her for just a second. Aaron felt a small, familiar chill run the length of her spine. She knew that look. When she glanced over her shoulder, she wasn't surprised to see the biker who had gotten up walking away from the front door. Ain't nobody around, Rick, he said without taking his eyes off Aaron. I locked the door. The other biker had stood up and was leaning against the bar with a hungry leer aimed at her. Her stomach grew cold. She knew from experience how these things played out. She knew fighting would just make it worse. Come on, guys, I just need to use the phone, she said. The one called Rick said, well now, that can still happen, honey. See, this here's a business, which means it ain't a charity. You gotta give a little to get a little. Take care of us, we take care of you. Are you kidding me? She said. I just come in here for a little fucking help and this is what you do? Rick's grin grew wider. For starters. Somebody could come in, she said. She saw the biker leaning on the bar straighten up and finish the rest of his whiskey in one shot. The glass hit the bar with a heavy thunk. Honey, don't nobody come in here but once in a blue moon. Why do you think we're so lonely? Rick said. Aaron heard the one who had locked the door getting closer. His steps were a hollow, creaking tolling of what was to come. She froze as memories rushed over her. There had been situations like this before, situations where it wasn't a choice, when it wasn't anything but rage and the need to humiliate. What else had it ever been, though? Since that first time with Tico and then his friends until now with the fucking progeny and the war bitch and now these pricks, when had it ever been her choice, her want, her need? She was just this thing that people used and put back in the closet when they were done being nasty. She was a toy, or worse, 
a trash can for human waste and want. She couldn't even make a fucking phone call without getting trapped. No, not trapped, never trapped again. She felt the biker's hand fall onto her shoulder and she spun on him, focusing on a spot just beyond the nearest table by the door. She pushed him away from her and was startled when, instead of pulling toward that spot, the man she had shoved vanished from in front of her and appeared in midair above the table. He fell awkwardly and crashed into the table, splintering the thin legs and screaming as one of his knees bent to the side at a sickening angle. Rick and the other biker both shouted in surprise and took a step back. Aaron stared at her hands in bewilderment. After a second, she started to smile. What the fuck is this? The other biker yelled over his companion's screams. His hand flashed to the small of his back and under his leather vest. Aaron disappeared, reappeared behind him, and shoved him in the back. As soon as she touched him, he vanished and rematerialized near the spot she had been focusing on. This time, though, he was six feet above the ground and horizontal, but still positioned as he had been standing. With his feet slightly spread and his hand at the small of his back, the pistol just visible as he drew it. He fell fast and hit hard. A gunshot popped through the bar when he struck the floor. He didn't get up. Rick had recovered from his shock enough that he produced a shotgun from under the bar and aimed it at Aaron. She saw it just as he squeezed the trigger and she pulled to a spot six feet from where he had fired. Cordite stink filled the air as the shotgun roared and the back of a bar stool exploded into splinters. Rick, to his credit, smoothly worked the slide and brought the barrel around and fired at Aaron again. But she was gone again, this time back to the far side of the room. It went like that for three more shots, with Rick firing at something that became nothing. Suddenly, she was right beside him. She latched onto his wrist and said, Rape this, you fucking pig. Aaron focused on the highest point in the center of the room and pushed. She'd wanted him to fall like the others had. Instead, he appeared with a sharp wooden crack among the heavy timbers that supported the roof, and his body kicked and convulsed for a few seconds before growing still. The whole left side of Rick's head was fused into one of the rafters, and he was dangling there with his head at a twisted angle. His right eye bulged from the socket and was shot through with blood that seemed aimed at Aaron. His body twitched madly as the shotgun clattered to the floor. The rafters started bleeding from the cracks around Rick's ruined face. Aaron stifled a scream and turned away, her hands coming to cover her eyes. Bile rose in her throat, but she refused to be sick. It wasn't that the man was dead, it was just so fucking gross. Aaron slid down behind the bar and sat there with the bar hiding the view of the room. It was silent except for the faint creak of wood and a slow dripping sound. There was a full bottle of vodka by her foot that had fallen during the fight. She picked it up, spun off the plastic top, and took a long, deep drink. Tears began to well in her eyes again. She told herself it was from the cheap liquor. An hour later, Aaron stood outside Rod's roadhouse, watching it burn through drunk eyes. It turned out that the biker who had broken his knee had been unlucky enough to catch a shotgun blast in the side of his head while Rick had been firing at Aaron. The other one had apparently shot himself when he fell and died pretty quick. 
Aaron had cleaned out the register and found a couple of cans of lighter fluid behind the bar. It didn't take long to empty them over the walls and furniture before setting it all alight with a book of matches. It only took a couple of minutes for the long, dried wood to become fully engulfed in flame. She turned her back on the conflagration and faced the distant lights of Las Vegas. There were people there, people who had used her, people who only ever used anyone. She was done with all of them. Tico was there, though, and she owed him a goodbye, if nothing else. Tonight was the night she would clear her account and go her own way. Aaron looked back over her shoulder until she could see the heart of the fire. She focused and pushed the bottle into the flames. A second after that, she was gone. Chapter 8 Israel opened his eyes. He didn't feel like he'd been sleeping. There was no grogginess to mark a night spent sleeping. He didn't feel the need to stretch or yawn or any of the other things that he normally associated with any kind of state of unconsciousness. He only felt awareness where there had previously been none. He sat up and looked around. He was sitting on the floor in a large room free of any furniture or amenities of any sort. Three of the walls were stark white. The fourth was what looked like a thick wall of glass or plexiglass that had dark smears in a few spots. There was a door in the center of the transparent wall, but no visible handle on his side. He groaned when he realized that he had, once again, woken up in a cell. He spent a moment cursing out his frustration and then tried to look beyond the glass wall. While his cell was well lit, the room beyond was dark. Still, he could see something. Though there was no light, he could make out the corners of the empty room and the outline of the heavy door on the far wall in misty shades of gray. His curiosity roused, he stepped toward the transparent cell wall and tried to get a closer look at the outer room. He felt something hard underneath his foot and stopped. Israel looked down and nudged the offending object where he could get a better look at it. His brow wrinkled in confusion when he recognized the thick white remains of a T-bone steak. Israel picked it up to examine it, but stopped when he got a look at his hands. They were covered in dark smears and smelled of old meat. Tiny bits of dried flesh were stuck beneath his fingernails. He noticed that his shirt was also stained with crimson gray remains. He looked around the cell and realized there were at least a dozen more bones similar to the one in his hand scattered about. He tried to shout, but it came out weak, as though he had no air to draw on. He took a deep breath and shouted, Hey, somebody! Only silence replied. He repeated the cry and pushed hard against the transparent door. He was sure it was plexiglass and at least four inches thick. It didn't budge. The door on the other side of the room opened, and lights flooded the space beyond the acrylic wall. A man Israel had never seen before came into the room pushing a rolling table with a large flat-screen television on it. He wore a starched white lab coat over a white shirt and dark tie with gray slacks. He stopped a few feet from the wall and started rolling out a long cord to plug in the television. Hey, Israel said. Hey, man, I need some help. Labcoat bent over, plugged in the set, and then stood to face Israel. Yes, sir, he said. 
You do. Can you get me out of here? I need to see Olivia Warburton. Mrs. Warburton and the twins will be in to speak with you in a moment. In the meantime, sir, try to remain calm. With that, he left the room closely followed by Israel's objections. Israel took another breath and repeated his mantra. Focus on the question, he whispered. Focus on the question. He heard the door open and Warburton and Allison came into the room. Michelle came in last and sealed the door behind them. All three women wore grave expressions and met his eyes reluctantly. What the hell is this? he shouted. Warburton's wheelchair whirred to a stop next to the television monitor. Allison stepped closer to the glass and said, Israel, I need to ask you to be calm, okay? We can explain, but it's going to take a minute and it's going to be hard to hear. We have some things you need to see. Let me out of this cage and I'll watch anything you want. And why are there raw steak bones everywhere? I'll explain. Just bear with me, okay? Please? He saw her soft eyes pleading. They were moist with unshed tears, and he wondered what was going on to move her so deeply. His frustration cooled, and he nodded. Allison let out a relieved breath. Okay, I'm going to tell you the whole of it, but... It's important that you remain calm, okay? Again, he nodded. You were right, she said. We haven't been telling you everything. Actually, we haven't told you much at all. Do you remember when you asked me what Stone meant by awakened? Yes, you lied to me about it. Allison nodded. I did. I'm sorry. You caught me off guard. Stone slipped up when he said that. Mr. Trent. Warburton said, what do you know about multiverse theory? Israel blinked. His eyes were dry like he hadn't done that in a while. Not much. I think I caught a show on the Science Channel where Neil deGrasse Tyson was talking about it. Something about parallel universes or something. Michelle stepped forward. The theory states that the universe, the reality that we experience, is not the only one that exists. It is, in fact, one of an infinite number of possible realities separated by a kind of quantum vibration or probability variation. Really, if you look at Everett's many worlds interpretation, shall? Allison said with a gentle warning in her tone. Michelle nodded. Right, sorry. Look, it's like this. The multiverse is real. It's the truth. There are universes upon universes upon universes out there all existing simultaneously. Some of us know this as fact rather than hypothesis. Israel shrugged. Fine. Parallel universes, great. What does that have to do with me in here? Not parallel, Michelle said, holding up a finger. Parallel refers to something that runs along identical but separate vectors without ever intersecting. The multiverse consists of separate but interconnected universes. Have you ever been to Chuck E. Cheese's? The sudden shift startled Israel. What? Our parents used to take us there when we were kids. They had this really big ball pit that you could jump in, and all these hundreds of plastic balls would cover you up and bounce around. Fun stuff. That's reality. Reality is a kid's ball pit at Chuck E. Cheese's? Just the ball pit part. Imagine each of those balls is an entire universe unto itself, surrounded by other universes, but 
only touching at certain points by virtue of their shape, touching but separate enough that they retain their individual integrity. Granted, the universes are more bubble than sphere, so I guess it would be more foam than ball pit, but the example serves, I think. Israel stared at the woman quietly for a long moment and then said, Why am I in this damned cage? Warburton retrieved a television remote from the stand next to her wheelchair and clicked the television on. Watch this. It was taken a little over four hours ago. The screen lit up and Israel found himself looking at an overhead view of the room he was currently trapped in. He glanced at the high corners of the room and saw a small half dome hanging from the corner to his left. The camera angle and the recording matched. The recording showed him standing in the middle of the room. His shoulders were hunched, his arms slack at his sides. A small clock counted off the hours, minutes, and seconds in the top middle of the picture. I don't remember that, he said. Keep watching, Warburton said. I'll skip ahead. She pressed a button and the image stuttered ahead, but from what Israel could tell, really didn't change. The man on the monitor didn't move at all. Warburton froze the image and gestured to the counter. Once we got you in here, you stood like that for nearly 90 minutes. Same spot, same pose. Israel shook his head. No, I would. Then this, Warburton interrupted. She restarted the video. Video Israel was in the same pose when the counter started ticking ahead again. A few seconds in, the stillness was broken as his head snapped up and his mouth opened. Video Israel surged forward and slammed his fists against the wall, snapping his teeth like something inhuman. The head turned, tracking something beyond the plexiglass until it faced the camera. The picture zoomed in on that gray visage. Warburton paused the video with that face filling the screen. The skin was gray and the lips black. Wild, black-veined eyes scanned the transparent wall with a feral intensity. A dark tongue was just visible inside the mouth. Israel stared in disbelief. What? What are you doing? That's not me. That can't be me. It is, Warburton said. It is you. The only reason you're talking to us now is because we pushed ten pounds of raw meat into that cell with you. Hence the bones. Israel looked at his filthy clothes and hands, then back at the screen. Michelle's ball pit analogy is an apt one. Warburton said, but I've always thought of it more like a hotel where all the rooms are adjoining. The points where universes push against one another are like adjoining walls in a hotel. If you have the right key, you can go from one room to the next. If not, you're stuck in your own room, or in this case, universe. Long ago, other races that had the right technological key came here, they came here and they made this world into something of a playground. Israel was still staring at the monitor despite not wanting to. When he didn't respond, Warburton went on. They had their way with the early humans. Whether it was some kind of crossbreeding or direct gene manipulation, we don't know. 
Since we are talking about tens of thousands of years ago, the odds are very good we never will. It happened, though, and the results were bizarre. Many of the creatures we know from legend and lore are the product of these experiments. Think of a mythical beast, and it is probably attached to a bloodline that began with these visitors tampering. Turn it off, Israel whispered. Warburton didn't seem to hear him. The theory is that they did this for a while and then stopped for whatever reason. Maybe they did all they wanted, maybe they got bored, who knows? Again, it's been tens of thousands of years. Regardless, they left and humanity rolled on. Then, slowly, century after century, these anomalous genetic strains were either eradicated or bred into the genetic background. The monsters disappeared. So we find ourselves today in a world that hasn't seen a minotaur or an ogre in a millennium. Israel suddenly drew back his fist and slammed it against the plexiglass wall. It shuddered under the blow and a boom echoed through the room so loudly that all three women jerked in surprise. Allison let out a small squeal as she stepped back. Israel looked Warburton in the eyes and said through gritted teeth, Turn it off. The television went dark. Israel leaned against the wall with both hands and said, What does this have to do with me? We're getting to that, Allison said. Like Olivia said, the tampering that was done faded. The human genome, as it turns out, is a resilient and stubborn one. Over generations, it tends to resort back to a more natural state once it's been tampered with. We're not sure why. The changes, though, don't just evaporate. They get pushed aside and tangled up in what a lot of people call junk DNA. Those are the large sections of a genome that have no obvious effect on the genome's function. So even today, there are people walking around with this stuff all mixed up in their genes, just sitting there doing nothing. Israel almost laughed when he made the mental connection. Until it gets awakened, he said. Allison nodded. Yeah. Israel pushed away from the wall and turned his back on them while he focused. How, he said. Is it something the progeny did to me? No, Michelle said before her sister could speak. Well, not directly. Remember the place you and Aaron woke up? Wait, stupid question. Of course you do. See, the progeny were tapping into the ID, and the kinds of energy they released are... Wait, Israel said. Tapping into the what? The ID? The inner dark. Oh, wait, you don't know what that is, Michelle said. Remember the ball pit thing? Well, the integrity of the individual universes ensures that there are spaces that no world can occupy, like the gaps between the curves of the balls in the pit. We call that space the inner dark, and... All kinds of crazy cosmic stuff exists there. Theoretical energies and particles that we don't even have names for. This is the stuff that you and Aaron were exposed to when you encountered the breach point. Israel started to ask when Warburton said, The body with the appendages coming from its torso. Right, Michelle said. Remember the light you saw? The one you told Matt about? Israel nodded. Ocular nerve excitation triggered by exposure to awakening energies, Allison said, picking up the explanation. 
It's one of the few constants among reports given by people who've been awakened. The theory is that the ancient visitors learned to manipulate energies that we have no practical access to, and they used them in their technology. That's what allowed them to breach worlds and screw around with DNA like it was a bucket of Legos. When someone with the right kind of junk DNA gets exposed to those energies, the junk DNA becomes active or wakes up and starts affecting the genome. The person changes. We call that being awakened. So what, they become like me? Like that? He pointed at the television. No, they aren't all like you. Most of the changes that occur are relatively benign and tend to fall within certain categories. We think these were the strongest creatures' DNA from the old days, so we call them bloodlines. And when this happens to someone, you lock them up like this? No, Warburton said. So what makes me so special? Because you're dead, Mr. Trent, Warburton said. That statement hung in the air like an unwelcome scent for nearly a minute before Israel said, Bullshit. The fact that I can call bullshit on that pretty much proves it to be bullshit since dead guys can't talk. Allison turned away from the plexiglass wall. Michelle moved to her side and laid a comforting hand on her shoulder. I'm really sorry, Israel, Michelle said, but it's not. You died in my office a little over nine hours ago, Warburton said. No respiration, no heartbeat. A few minutes after that, you started moving and we realized that you were a necrophage. A what? Necrophage, Allison said, turning back to face him with damp red eyes. It's one of the bloodlines we mentioned. It means that for your bloodline DNA to awaken, your body had to die first. It's very rare, but it's where the legends of zombies and all the other kinds of walking dead came from. Most of them are just mindless eating machines like the stories say, while some of them retain a small portion of intelligence. Always, though, they are predators. Which is why we put them down as soon as we discover them, Warburton said. What Allison is neglecting to mention is that necrophage DNA is transmittable through bodily fluids. Blood, saliva, anything. They all carry the requisite ingredients needed to create more necrophage of whatever strain. Israel stared at the television. But I'm not dead. And whatever happened to me on that video has passed, right? Warburton sighed. Hold your breath, Mr. Trent. What? Hold your breath. For as long as you possibly can. We need to get past this part, and this is an expedient way to do it. Go on. We'll wait. Israel shrugged, inhaled deeply, and held his breath. He closed his eyes and waited. Everything he'd learned replayed in his mind as he waited. The pressure in his lungs and head that always came with holding his breath didn't come. When he opened his eyes, he saw that Warburton had rolled closer to the glass and was holding out a smartphone with the display pointed toward him. A timer application was running and displayed eight minutes and 37 seconds. Israel opened his mouth and air slowly left his lungs as his organs relaxed. Warburton placed the phone on her lap and said, Satisfied? Or do you need to take your pulse and temperature next? You don't need to breathe. 
The only reason you can talk is because your body is running on muscle memory to keep air moving through your lungs. Israel just stood staring at her. No, he said. No. No, no, no. He turned away from the glass. You're telling me that I'm a monster, that I'm that thing in the video. Not entirely, Allison said. You said it yourself. You're talking to us. You have full control of your faculties. That's because as rare as necrophage are, you're even rarer. Israel laughed at that. I can't wait to hear how, he said. Warburton said, you're what we call a paragon. That's someone who is a perfect balance of primary and bloodline DNA. It's that balance that allows you to remain in control where other necrophage cannot. That video didn't look all that controlled to me, Israel said. You needed to feed, Warburton said. Your physiology has changed. You are dependent on animal proteins to the point that you go feral if you don't get them. The stakes, Israel said. No one replied. He stood with his back to them, his mantra half-heartedly forming on his lips. Okay, he said. So I'm in control now. I'm good and I'm on a high-protein diet. Let me out of here. Absolutely not, Warburton said. Israel turned on her. Why not? Why not? Did you not hear what I said, Mr. Trent? You're infectious. You're also the first verifiable paragon necrophage since Vlad the Impaler. We have no clue what you're capable of doing. For God's sake, you're the walking, talking patient zero of the zombie apocalypse for all I know. There is no way in hell I'm letting you out of that cage. I have a life, Israel shouted. Which is over, Warburton countered. You died the second you went near that breach point. I'm sorry, Israel, but that's just how it is. Israel slammed his fists against the plexiglass again. Michelle and Allison both jumped at the sudden action. Warburton watched him without moving. They stayed like that for a full minute, neither of them flinching. My father needs me, Israel said. Warburton nodded. I know. He will be told that you died in an accident that requires a closed casket. Shortly after that, I will personally make sure he is transferred to the very best Alzheimer's care facility in the country. I swear to you, Israel, he will want for nothing for the rest of his days. Israel turned away from them again. His teeth ground together and anger bubbled through him. That's enough for now, I think, Warburton said. He heard them slowly starting to file out. The mechanical whir of the wheelchair buzzed against Israel's senses. He turned when he heard the door open. Hey, Warburton, he said loudly. How'd you end up in that chair? She stopped and looked over her shoulder enough for him to see her profile. Why on earth would you want to know that, she said. You seem to know all there is to know about me, he said. Only seems fair that I should know something about you. Warburton quietly considered it. Finally, she said, When I was twenty-four, I got stabbed in the back by an insane angel. 
Try to get some rest, Mr. Trent. The door closed before Israel could reply. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sorceress as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy.